This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. What I would like to share with you today is the story of Tishabav as brought down by the Mamloes. As we've discussed on previous occasions, the Mamloes was a book written by a large group of Sephardic rabbis. It was started in the year 1860, but then it was continued for many, many decades as they wanted to include the entirety of the Jewish canon. And because of that, it took many, many years. The original rabbi who started it, Rabbi Cooley, passed away after writing the book of Genesis alone. It was written originally in Ladino, and it is the most famous work of Jewish literature ever written in Ladino. Ladino, of course, was the language, the Yiddish of the Sephardic world. So just like Yiddish was an amalgamation of German, Hebrew, um, you know, uh, Polish, the, uh, the, the Ladino was an amalgamation of Spanish and Hebrew, and it was the Yiddish of the Sephardic world. This is the most comprehensive and most famous work that Mamloe has ever written in Ladino, and as such it was prized by the Sephardic world for generations. The most uh, commonly used translation is the one written by Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Rabbi Arya Kaplan was an extraordinary Jew who lived in the latter half of the 20th century in New York City. He was brilliant. He was his knowledge of the hidden and revealed Torah was beyond, uh, really, we, we didn't recognize how great he was, and we still don't recognize how great he is. Obviously, he's in Shemayim right now. And he was an expert in Ladino, so his translation is directly from the Mamloes itself. We'd like to start with discussing the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash, the first temple. Obviously, Tishabov is the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, and the first and most horrific thing that happened was the Jewish people believing the spies who came back and slandered the land of Israel, the Jewish people giving up all hope of their future and saying, we just want to go back to Egypt. Egypt was horrible, but we just want to go back there rather than deal with the unknown in, um, in Israel. They cried all night long about this terrible land that God was going to give them. And God in the morning says the famous quote, Atem bechisem shalchinam, You have cried for nothing, and I will make this a day of mourning for forever. And of course, Tisha B'av is the day on which so many horrific tragedies happened to the Jewish people. Not only the destruction of the first and second temple, it was the day in 1492 when the Jews were kicked out of their uh, out of their homes and their, the land that they inhabited for centuries in Spain. They literally left on Tisha B'av itself. We have the exact date of August. I forgot the date exactly in 1492. It was on Tisha B'av. And World War I broke out on Tisha B'av as well. And that, that, of course, was just a continuation through to World War II and the horrific tragedies that happened to the Jewish people on World War II. The liquidation of the ghetto of Warsaw, which was one of the most horrific parts of the war, also uh, was completed on Tisha B'av. Uh, so there's just there's untold misery that happens to the Jewish people. For today, we're going to try to focus on the destruction of the first temple, and possibly the second temple will start as well. Probably we'll start the story of the destruction of the second temple as well, as told by the Mamloes. Eighteen years before the temple was destroyed, and anybody who has a phone, if you could just please turn it on mute. Eighteen years before the 
temple was destroyed in Yerushalayim by the first Beis Hamikdash, the one that was built by King Solomon. Now, mind you, over a hundred years before it was destroyed, there were prophets calling out to the Jewish people to stop their idolatrous, adulterous, and often even uh, homicidal practices. There was the, the first base of Migdash was destroyed. The first temple was destroyed for the three cardinal sins, uh, uh, which are forbidden sexual relationships, the um, idolatry, and homicide. Eighteen years before the temple was destroyed, a heavenly voice was heard in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Bavel. And it said, Evil servant, go and destroy the holy temple. My children are rebelling and do not listen to my voice. Nebuchadnezzar was understandably very, very afraid. He said, the Jewish God wants to take revenge on his children, so to speak, and then he's going to take it out on me. This is what happened to all the other kings who had tried to mess with the Jewish people. The entire world was acutely aware of what happened to the great civilization of Egypt that was brought to its knees by their enslaving of the Jewish people, and he was very, very concerned. Bavel had two neighbors. Their names were Ammon and Moab. They were very evil, even though the Jewish people had spared them. When the Jewish people were conquering on their way to the land of Israel, they said to they sent the message to Nebuchadnezzar. They heard about this voice calling out, and they said, "Go, go, destroy the Jewish people. It's time." Nebuchadnezzar said, "I'm afraid that the Hebrew God will do to me as He did to our ancestors." And Ammon and Moab said, "Don't worry, He is not with them anymore." He said, they, so Nebuchadnezzar said back, but he's very close. They'll call out and he will answer. And they said, no, at this point he's very far. They have sinned so much that even if they call out, he will not reply. Nebuchadnezzar says back, but they have righteous people amongst them. They have saints and tzaddikim, righteous people. And when they call out, Hashem will listen to them. And they say, no, there's no more saints amongst the Jewish people. And even if the saints pray... He, uh, he won't answer, they won't, they won't be answered. And they've all died out. There's nothing, there's nothing left. No more tzaddikim to protect the Jewish people. He said, but even the wicked amongst the Jewish people, if they cry out to God, Hashem will listen to them. And they said, the wicked of them have gone so far, they're beyond return. He said, it's the rainy season. If I go to attack right now, I'm going to face rain and snow. They said, go along the mountainsides. There's not a lot of snow on the mountainsides. And you can go because the, the mountainsides are sheer and there's pathways through them. And you can go through them. I have no place to stay there, Nebuchadnezzar said. To which they responded, the cemeteries of Israel are better than your palaces. So, but it's an interesting thing. If you want someone to go, that's not what I would tell him exactly, but okay. <laughs> he began to make divinations to see if he would be successful. He shot an arrow aimed at Rome, and it would not fly. He shot an arrow aimed at Alexandria, it would not fly. He shot an arrow aimed at Jerusalem, and it flew. 
He took seeds and he put them in a little patch and he called it Rome and they would not grow. He put seeds in a patch called Alexandria and they would not grow. He put seeds in a patch called Jerusalem and they grew rapidly. He lit a lamp with the name Rome on it. It would not light. He lit a lamp with the name Alexandria on it and it would not light. He lit a lamp with the name Jerusalem on it and it burned brightly. While this is going on, the prophets are telling the Jewish people, you must repent, you must repent. Hashem is angry, and He will cast you into exile. They said, maybe, maybe you're right, but we've got plenty of time. We've got plenty of time. The common response to somebody being faced with their own responsibility. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar arms an attack. He remained in a camp in the city of Antioch to the north, and he sent Nebuzaradan, his general, with 300 donkeys bearing axes that were made of the strongest steel in the world, steel that would cut through even steel. They come and they surround the city of Jerusalem, and they start trying to hack at the walls, at the gates of Jerusalem with these incredibly powerful, the most powerful steel at the time, and every time they take an axe to the wall of Jerusalem, the axe crumbles. They lay siege for three and a half years, and there's nothing doing, and finally, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm just going to turn around. But then he hears like a premonition, it says, measure the city gates and the walls, and he starts measuring, and he notices that every day, the wall is sinking two and a half tfachim, two and a half hand breaths. Eventually, it would end up sinking completely into the ground. A heavenly voice calls out to him, after you were ready to give up, with all your might and all your soldiers, you couldn't do anything. God wanted him to understand that message first. Before you go out and try to conquer my temple, let me let you know that your forces are nothing. That your army is nothing. You've got nothing on me. Only after you are ready to give up and turn away and go back defeated were you able to see that I'm the one who's destroying my own city. The walls are being swallowed up two and a half hand breaths every day. That's me doing it, not you. And then a voice comes out from heaven and says, Now is the time to conquer Jerusalem. Now is the time For it to be destroyed, the temple is to be shattered, and the sanctuary is to be burned. He had one of these special axes left, just one. And he himself hit the gate of the city that was left. The gate was already sinking and sinking. He hits the gate of the city, and the wall, the, 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 the gate shatters. And the hordes of Babylonian attackers come into the land of Israel and start, sorry, come into the city of Jerusalem and start murdering the millions who were there for safety. The Israelites, the Jewish people, had committed seven sins, and we'll get back to that later, when they killed a prophet who was admonishing them in the temple. And therefore, on the seventh day of Av, they were finally able to enter the temple Nebuzaradan and his men ate and drank and feasted and caroused in the temple walls. 
until on the ninth day of Av, they set it on fire. The fire burned through the end of the ninth day and into the most of the tenth day, and it, eventually it was done. Rabbi Yochanan said, if I had been there, I would have made Tisha B'av on the tenth day of Av, because the majority of the burning of the temple occurred on the tenth day of Av. However, we have it on the ninth day of Av. Because the ninth day of the Av is the one that ends in tragedy. The tenth day of the Av ends with the temple not being burned through, and the time for rebuilding starts. The Jewish people are always hopeful. If the end of the day is already, the tragedy has gone through its cycle, we are now moving towards the rebuilding phase. So we have Tisha B'Av on the ninth day of Av. While the temple was burning, there were special young Kohanim known as the Pirchei Kahuna. The Kohen apprentices. They climbed up to the roof of the temple and they said, Master of the Universe, We no longer have the merit to be the trustees of the keys of your temple. They held in their hand the ring with the keys of the temple. And they said, we no longer have the merit to be the trustees of the temple. You take the keys to your temple. And they threw the keys up on high and a miracle occurred. And the form of a hand came down from heaven and took the keys of the temple. And then these young teenage boys jumped into the blaze. At that time, the angels in heaven began to say, Is it right that an evil person should say proudly, I burned the temple? So Hashem commanded that a fire come down from heaven and be the main fire that would consume the temple. The way this happened was originally God summoned two of his angels, Michael and Gabriel. And he said to them, who do you love most? And they said, the Jewish people. And he said to them, what do you love second most? And they said, your holy temple. And Hashem said, I'm going to save one by sacrificing the other. And he bound them with an oath that they would burn the temple. We have to remember that the burning of the temple, as horrific as it was, was an act of kindness of God, because had he not burned the temple, he would have taken out the Jewish people. They were so rebellious. Their activities were so terrible, and for so long they had been warned and ignored the words of the prophets. So Hashem bound them by an oath. Michal took the two torches and he gave them to Gavriel. And Gavriel went down to burn the temple. The Gemara tells us, in the name of Rabbi Yeshua, that Gavriel held on to those coals in his hands for six months. And in that time, those coals cooled down. Had he not cooled down the coals from on high that were meant to burn up the temple, they would have not just destroyed the temple, but they would have destroyed all of Israel. When he came down and he added the heavenly coals, and those were really what consumed the temple, he came back up to heaven. Now again, we have to remember, angels don't have physical bodies. So when we talk about angels, we're talking about more of, you have to understand this, 
in a more adult form. These are metaphorical discussions. When he came back, he was sentenced to be punished by being flogged with 60 fiery lashes. They said, you either could listen to God or don't listen to God. If you had listened to God and done your job, that would have been fine. If you had not listened to God because you wanted to save the Jewish people, that would have been fine too. But you ended up destroying the temple anyway. So, you're guilty of not fulfilling your job. And furthermore, when you came back and told God, I've done all that you commanded, you're being punished for bringing bad news. You don't want to be the bearer of bad tidings. At this time, Gavriel lost his exalted position. He was one of the top angels in heaven. Again, this is, we don't really, we have no idea what heaven looks like. These are, he lost his top position in heaven, and it was given to the angel in charge of the Persians. He ended up holding on to this position for 11 days, the angel of the Persians. The first thing he did when the angel of the Persians got his exalted position was he asked God permission to tax the Jewish people. He was given that authority. Then he comes back and he says, I want to tax the Torah scholars. And at that point, Gavriel could not hold back anymore. Even though he was at a lower position because he had been demoted, Gavriel says, God, master of the universe. The Torah scholars, their wives, stay up late at night trying to support their husbands. They've got nothing. You're going to allow these righteous families whose wives are working so hard so they can study Torah, who they are sacrificing their ability to make good money, they could get good jobs and do well, but instead they're sitting and studying your Torah. You want them to get taxed as well? Nothing. Finally, he says, God, if you were to place all the nations of the world on one side, and just your servant, Daniel, on the other side, he would outweigh all of them. You can't allow the scholars to be taxed like this. And then Hashem said, who is speaking good about my people? And Gavriel says, it is I. And then Hashem says, okay, Gavriel, you're getting promoted. Which is a, teach, a lesson from the Gemara. HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves no one more than he who loves HaKadosh Baruch Hu's children, God's children. And the more that you speak favorably about the Jewish people, the more God speaks favorably about you, the more God elevates you. Gavriel only got elevated, <coughs> excuse me, Gavriel only got elevated after he spoke in defense of the Jewish people. So, because of this, Gavriel grabs this decree, and again, metaphor. Gabriel grabs the decree that was in the hand of the Persian. He had already been given position, permission to tax the Torah scholars. He grabs this decree and he swallows it. And because of that, the Gemara says, during the time of the Persian rule, some Torah scholars were taxed and some were not. While the temple was going to be destroyed, there was a very clear message to the Jewish people. They could see the divine presence moving from place to place. It's like a person, just like we, you could see the divine presence in the, in the desert, 
as a cloud resting upon the tabernacle, the divine presence started evacuating the temple far ahead. And the Jewish people were supposed to take a lesson from this. And they saw it go from place to place and eventually it rested in Har Hazesim on Mount Olives, which we know is where so many of the greatest Jews of all time were buried. And we know that's the place where the eventual resurrection will begin when the resurrection of the dead begins. And a heavenly voice came out every single day. And it said, Shuva Eli Shuva Elechem. Come back to me and I will come back to you. But they did not pay any, any attention and eventually, like we see, Nebuchadnezzar, who, the king who sent his general, Nebuchadnezzar, the general, ended up destroying the temple. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, gave his general three orders. The first order was, take good care of Yirmiyah Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet. He should not be harmed. Jeremiah, again, is one of the most tragic figures in Jewish history. He's a man who almost the entirety of his prophecies are consumed with begging the Jewish people, warning the Jewish people again and again and again to stop their evil ways and to come back to Hashem, telling them what was coming, telling them what was coming, and it was never heeded. And eventually he sees the Jewish people going down and he witnesses the horrible destruction of the Beis Hamikdash of the Temple and he writes the Book of Lamentations, the Book of Echa, which we read on Tisha B'Av by night. So the first order was not to harm Jeremiah. Jeremiah is walking alongside the millions of Jews who are being brought into captivity to be sold as slaves in Babylon. And he sees a group of teenagers walking with heavy chains. The way they would march slaves in those days was with heavy chains. He sees a group of teenagers marching with heavy chains. And he takes the chains and he puts them around his own neck. And the Vuzuradin takes him out. And then he sees another group of older men walking in chains, and he puts his head in the chains. And again, Nebuzaradan takes him out. And Nebuzaradan says to him, one of three things must be true. A, you must be a false prophet. Because you prophesied for years about all these things that were going to happen, and no one listened. So why are you so in pain right now? The second possibility is you don't care about suffering because I don't want to hurt you and I keep trying to remove you from the fetters and you keep putting yourself back in these heavy, painful, torturous fetters. Why are you doing this? Number three, you're a murderer because the king told me not to allow you to have any pain And if you keep doing this, and we come down and he sees you in fetters, he's going to have my head. Finally, God says to Jeremiah, if you wish to go with them, I will remain here. And if you wish to remain, I will go, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, what good can I do for them? You go, God, and I'll stay. As Jeremiah is returning, he sees on the ground cut up fingers 
and limbs on the ground. And he picks up these limbs and he embraces them. And he says, my children, my children, did I not tell you to repent before this would happen? Did I not warn you? Why did you not heed the calls? That was the first order that Nebuchadnezzar gave Nebuchadnezzar. And the second one was that the God of the Jewish people hates immorality. And incredibly strict orders were given that no married woman should be touched. And in that time, when the Jewish people realized this order... Every woman who was not married came running to a man and said, marry me. I won't eat from your bread. I won't drink from your water. Just put your name over me and save me from shame. And that indeed is what happened. And there only remained three women. And remember also, so many of the men had been killed already. There were men who ended up marrying seven women. This was before the prohibition against polygamy and they, there were so many women just flocking to men. There was a, a very large imbalance in, in terms of the numbers of men and women because so many men had died and women were just begging men, please, please marry me. I won't be a financial burden on you. I won't require anything of you. Just allow me to be Mrs. Cohn, Mrs. Goldstein, so I'll be saved. And amazingly... There were only three women who somehow did not procure for themselves husbands. And indeed, they were violated. And about them, it says in the book of Lamentations, Nashim inu b'tzion b'sulos b'yerushalayim. Women were violated in Zion, virgins in Jerusalem. The next order that he gave was like this. He said, the Jewish people's God is incredibly susceptible to the prayers of the Jewish people. Therefore, if the Jewish people start to pray as they're being brought into exile, God will have mercy on them and He will return them. Therefore, you must not allow any Jewish person to stop and pray at any time until after they've been fully exiled out of Israel. If you see somebody starting to pray, hack him to pieces and let everybody else see there will be no prayer here. And indeed, it worked. And the Jewish people were not allowed to pray until they finally went into Bavel. And that's why we have the psalm Al Naharos Bavel Sham Yashavnu Gam Bachinu Bizachrenu Es Sion. Oh, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion because they were not allowed to stop and mourn and weep and pray until they crossed over the Euphrates River into Babylon. Generally speaking, God is merciful and He does not allow one bad thing on top of another on top of another. However, when there have been cases where people have been warned repeatedly and repeatedly for decades and they've not heeded the warnings, 
God will sometimes bring one calamity on top of the other. And this is what happened by the destruction of the first temple. The way it happened was at first, Nebuchadnezzar came and he exiled King Yehoyachin and with him all the great sages. After that, he exiled Israel and all, all the temple vessels and just leaving behind the poor and the infirm. And then finally he came back and heaped one final calamity Actually, no, one more would be still happen. There was the destroy, destruction of the temple and the exile of almost everybody. And he only left behind the farmers and the vineyard keepers who would then be able to till the land and send them tribute. And they were left in the hands of Gedaliah ben Achikam. And eventually he too was murdered. He was assassinated. And the final, final, final um, exile occurred. It happened in stages. Interestingly enough, that's why when Mordechai, we say, Asher Yerush, Nebuchadnezzar, Im Melech Thank you. Right? In the, in, the, in the Purim Megillah, we say, when was Mordechai exiled? By Nebuchadnezzar, when he was exiled along with King Yechanya Melech Yehuda. That was, he was one of the sages. He was one of the Sanhedrin. He was exiled as part of the first exile. There were so many stages to this exile, so many opportunities to repent. When the second, when the, the, the two main exiles were the first one with all the leaders and the king, and the second one with the final sweeping out after the destruction of the first temple. When the second refugees, when the second people were being forced into exile, the king forced the Jews to come out in honor of this great victory, and he forced them to show praise, to shower praise to the king. This was a huge victory. The fact that he destroyed the temple of the God of the Jewish people, and he had exiled the people, it was considered in those days a tremendous, tremendous victory. And Nebuchadnezzar forced the Jews to come out wearing festive white clothing to celebrate the great victory and the exile of, of Israel and Judea. And the Jewish people came out wearing white clothing on the outside and black clothing on the inside. And as the exiles were being dragged through the streets, the people who were already there from the earliest exiles would say, Do you know what happened to my uncle? Do you know what happened to my parents? Do you know what happened to my children? And the responses were... Oh, this, this one died of starvation. This one died in the, in the, in the fire. This one died by the, by the sword. And the Jewish people, if you can imagine, the feeling of having to praise Nebuchadnezzar on the outside while hearing news of your relatives and finding out how they died, the horrific and brutal deaths that they died, crying on the inside, praising on the outside. Now, there is a story in the destruction of the first temple that has a very similar physical manifestation today. We mentioned earlier that the Jewish people killed a Navi, a prophet who was a prince and a prophet. He was the son of the previous king. 
And he was a priest. Sorry, he was a priest and a prophet, not a, not a prince. He was a priest and a prophet. And he came to admonish the people in the temple on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, which was also a Shabbos. And they murdered him in cold blood. His blood was boiling on the floor of the Beis HaMikdash for over 150 years. And when Nebuzaradan, the terrible general who's described in the Talmud as the chief butcher of the Babylonian campaign, comes in and sees the blood boiling on the floor, he asks the Jewish people, what is this blood? And they say to him, oh, it's just the blood of offerings. They were embarrassed to say to him, we killed a priest and a prophet on Yom Kippur while he was admonishing us for serving idols. So they said, it was, it's the blood of offerings. He said, okay, let's bring more. I've never seen this before. Let's bring more blood. I want to see more blood boiling. This is an, a fascinating thing. I've, so they brought more offerings, and of course the blood didn't boil. And he eventually said, either you start tell, talking and telling me the real story here, or I will murder you like sheep. So they told him, this is the blood of a great priest and a prophet, Zechariah ben Yoyada, who he murdered, and his, t- his blood has been boiling on these flagstones of the temple for hu- over 150 years. Nebuzaradan, the chief butcher, says, don't worry, I'll get the blood to stop. And he starts slaughtering the Kohanim. The blood doesn't stop. He starts slaughtering the righteous people, the tzaddikim, the rabbis, the blood doesn't stop. He starts slaughtering children. Tens of thousands of children and the blood doesn't stop. And finally, Nebuzaradan looks up to heaven and says, I've taken the best of them. Do you need me to take the rest of them? And the blood stops boiling. There is a pile of ash and bone in Treblinka. You can still see it today. There is a pile of ash and blood in Treblinka. Treblinka is not one of the major death camps. Treblinka was built right next to the city of Lublin, within eyesight of the city of Lublin. For all those who said we had no idea what was going on, it is 1,000% a lie. They literally built this, the camp in eyesight of the city of Lublin to tell the Polish people, if you don't get in line, this will happen to you. And Treblinka is the most intact of the camps. No, sorry, not Treblinka. Majdanek, I'm sorry. Treblinka actually was entirely dismantled. Treblinka was a death camp built a few kilometers away from Warsaw, and every single day an entire train full of 26,000 roughly Jews would be brought every single day. And there's almost not a single survivor of Treblinka, because it wasn't a work camp at all. It was just a death camp. People showed up at Treblinka, and within a few hours they were gone. And when they finally finished liquidating the ghetto of Warsaw, they took Treblinka, and they dismantled everything, there's not almost a remnant of it. <coughs> the Nazis covered over their tracks on that one. But Majdanek, they did not. Majdanek is the most intact camp, and that's the one that's built in the shadows of Lublin. Majdanek had its own crematoria. 
Majdanek had its own gas chambers. The residents of Lublin could see all day long wheelbarrows filled with corpses being brought from the gas chambers at the bottom of the hill to the crematoria at the top of the hill. They could smell the stench of human bodies being burned in the crematoria. They could see the people who were forced to stand without any clothing in the freezing cold on the snow with their feet, eventually their shoes, their feet being so frostbitten that their, their, their feet would start to crack open and bleed. And there would be blood on the floor and there would be these, this, they called it the field of roses. The field of roses where you could see the bloody splotches of the people forced to freeze standing unclothed in the freezing winter. Everyone saw this. All this, we didn't know what was going on. You knew exactly what was going on. And at the top, there is a, they built a special monument. It's a whole thing, I don't know how they do it with the wind, but they've figured out a way to do it where there's, had a special dome, and you're able to walk up to it, and somehow the winds don't blow away all the ash and bone. And there's a mountain, not a mountain, a hill of ash and bone. You could see it. The ash and the bone of our people. And every time we have a trip over there, we talk about this exact story of Nebuzaradan. And we remember how the temple was destroyed because of sinas chinam, because of baseless hatred between Jews. Because we have to criticize each other. This one, or that guy did this, and this guy does that one, and these kinds of Jews, and those kinds of Jews. And you see this mountain of ash and, and, and bone, and you say, they took the best of us already. Do they have to take the rest of us? Can't we make it stop? Can't we start loving one another? Can't we abolish sinas chinam, abolish baseless hatred, and replace it with baseless love? Interestingly, Nebuzaradan makes the following calculation. He says, if the Jews killed one person and it caused all this death and destruction, they killed one person, Zechariah, and it caused tens of thousands of people to be killed, what's going to happen to me, the chief butcher, the person in charge of this entire campaign? And he runs off and he converts to Judaism. He divests himself of his entire estate and he converts to Judaism. And every time you hear that, you're like, it's not fair. Why does he get the right? It's not fair. Why does he get the right to convert? after being the master butcher of Jerusalem. And then we realize that we are not here to make God's calculations for him. However, if even Nebuzaradan, the master butcher of Jerusalem, could convert and could atone for his sins, whatever we've done, whatever we've done, 
There's nothing we can't walk back from. There's nothing we ever did in our lives that is so bad that God won't take us back and forgive us and cleanse us. If there's cleansing for the biggest monster of all, there's for sure cleansing for whatever we did. Sometimes we get stuck in this, it's too late for me, God doesn't really want me back. God takes everyone back with love. The book of Jeremiah tells us, even the birds of the heavens and the animals went into exile. For 52 years, there was not a single bird seen in Israel. 700 species of fish and 800 species of bird went with the Jewish people to Babylon. And for seven years, Israel was scorched with salt and sulfur, fulfilling what the Torah told us in Deuteronomy. Gufris v'melach s'reifakal artsa. Sulfur and salt has burned the whole land. And the Medrash tells us that you could see the land of Israel demarcated because all around it, the pagan lands, there was crops growing and it was fertile and Israel was just scorched and burned. Interestingly, today it's the opposite. I just went on a trip to Israel and they took us up to a special spot in the north all the way up by the border of Syria and Lebanon and there's like this Moshav that is pretty much surrounded by Syria and Lebanon on all sides. And they told us, if you want to know which parts are Israel and which parts are Syria or Lebanon, if it's cultivated, it's Israel. If it's just barren, it's either Syria or Lebanon. And it's true. They showed us, you could literally mark the borders of Israel by seeing if there's farming going on, if it's cultivated, then it's Israel. The land was so desolate that a man was trying to plow the land and some stones got kicked up. Stones and pebbles got kicked up and landed on his hand and the land itself was so sulfurized and salted that his hand withered. Now the Medrash tells us that the Babylonian exile was worse on the Jews than the Egyptian exile. You're wondering, how could this be so bad? How could it be so bad? Even if they were sold into slavery. In in Egypt, we were slaves for so many years, they were throwing our children into the water. And the answer is, that the Babylonian exile came after the Jews were so accustomed to living a rich and luxurious life. The Egyptian exile, by the time we got out, the people had been in exile for for hundreds of years. They, They didn't remember what it was like. The children who were, the people who actually left the exile of Egypt... They had no memories of being free. The people in Babylon, they were coming from being wealthy and successful, and they were reduced to such horrible poverty, deprivation, and slavery. I often think about, I often think about, we live in America right now, with such wealth, such comfort, such, we're, we're so pampered, God forbid something happened. As something often does when we, when we turn our backs on God and walk away. And I just, we, we need to make sure this never happens. We need to make sure that we have Geula and not 
We have to have redemption and not any more, any more. We would never be able to handle any of it. The angels on high were crying to God. The angels on high were crying to God, look at the Jewish people, look at the the shock to their system. Going from being wealthy, successful, prosperous, respected, to being sold as slaves in Babylon. And God says, what can I do for my dear children? I can't take them out right now because this is what they got because they didn't listen to me. The only thing I can do with them, do for them, is I can go down to them in exile. And he calls upon his heavenly retinue. And they all go down to exile together to be with the Jewish people. And Ezekiel tells the Jewish people what they see, what he sees, that God is coming down to be with us. Shinta Bigalusa. The heavenly presence, the heavenly the, the, the presence of God is coming down into exile with us, and they didn't believe him. And finally he was able to reveal it to them in a more physically manifest way, and they indeed felt it, and they felt the Jewish people in exile felt an enormous burden being lifted from them. And that is the story of the destruction of the first temple. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.